0: Welcome to Northview. Welcome to church. Welcome to uh, week four of our series, How to Pick a Fight. And this series has been comical to me because it's something we all need to hear, but I don't think any one of us showed up wanting to hear this conversation. Uh, But we're leaning in, and I'm so proud of our church for staying faithful to it. And and know next week uh, is probably going to be my favorite message in the entire series. Uh, All this builds to one closing idea that I wanna leave with you. And so let's finish strong, but if you are new, welcome to the party, welcome to the group Bible study, and uh, you should know uh, that we are one church meeting across 15 locations, and uh, there's a lot of us, and, and we're just excited about what God is doing here in our community, and I think it's important for you to understand as you join us, maybe you're new for the first time, We are a Bible-believing Christian church. Now, 20, 30 years ago, that would have been a very obvious thing to say. It would have even seemed unnecessary to say it, Uh, But we now live in times where there is a growing trend among people who would identify themselves as Christians uh, who have disassociated themselves uh, with God's word and are building churches without the firm foundation of the Holy Scripture. And just know our our church will never be a part of that trend and we will always be rooted in the firm foundation of God's written and inspired, infallible and always relevant word, amen. And so just know if if you're showing up uh, to North, you, you're going to get the Bible here, and you can go online and you can get any opinion or any philosophy or worldview that will support whatever you want to choose in life. But if you show up here respectfully, uh, we are going to uh, lay out the Bible, and that's our commitment. This is not my church, it's not your church. We do not have the authority to determine the curriculum and how it should be taught. Uh, The one who paid the ultimate price gets to make that decision, and so we anchor everything in the written word of God, amen? And I believe that the Bible can be, yeah, it it can be taught practically, and it's encouraging, and it's helpful, and it's insightful, and it's relevant, Um, but it's also challenging. And as a community, let's just always be a group of people to say, hey, we, we open up the pages of Scripture and we are trying to conform our lives to Scripture, not conform Scripture to our lives. And at times, uh, God picks an argument. You ever found that to be the case? You open up the pages of Scripture and it's like, man, God's picking an argument with me. And I often say, if you get in an argument with God and you win, you lose, right? And so it's just learning to lean into God's tender mercy in which scripture often taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, I created you for more. I sent my one and only son to die also that you can experience abundant life. And so here's the instructions as to how you get the life Jesus died to give you. And know that your faith oftentimes has to confront you before your faith can comfort you. Right, your faith has to confront you. Sometimes it comes with a challenge. Sometimes it comes with raising awareness. Hey, you're, you're broken and you're faulty and you're sinful in nature, uh, but it's comforting to know that God has paid the ultimate price so that you and I can have pardon from our sins. It confronts you and then it comforts you. You got me? And that is something that we just lean into every single week. And I just pray that uh, we do so respectfully and open-hearted and open-minded as to what does God have to say Uh, for my life, amen. And I'm excited about today because we're gonna look at a passage in Galatians chapter five. So those of you who brought your Bible, go ahead and just get there. And I love the book of Galatians. Paul is often writing letters to churches uh, that are dealing with dysfunction and some church drama because even churches are filled with imperfect people and where there are people, there will be problems. And so Paul would bravely and courageous and gently uh, speak to those matters. And the book of Galatians is great. There's some great themes in it, grace being one of them, but there's also some very comical themes in the book of Galatians. One of the primary themes is circumcision. Uh, This church was really hung up on that. And Paul came saying, hey, let's not make such a big deal out of that. And I'm I'm thankful that he addressed it so I don't have to. And uh, it's an awkward conversation. But what you find in Galatians chapter five is Paul is raising our awareness uh, to appreciate the understanding of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. If you're not a Christian and you're new to this conversation, just know that we believe in one God who exists in three persons. This is known as the Holy Trinity, and it is mysterious. And it is hard to fully explain, but that does not make him frustrating. That makes him fascinating. And so we lean into the mystery of our God, but know this there's this tendency among believers uh, to really affirm God the Father. We like this idea of God our Father. We like this idea of God the Son who came suffering and paid the ultimate price on the cross. But sometimes we're weirded out with conversations regarding the Holy Spirit. And so we oftentimes set that one aside and we diminish the role. Uh, A lot of times we completely overlook the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and just know this, uh, if you do not embrace the Holy Spirit and the Holy Trinity, uh, you are unknowingly an unbeliever. You do not fully believe in the God of the Bible. And so it's just understanding, hey, the Holy Trinity uh, is uh, God three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is not second to or lesser than God the Son and God the Father. You tracking with me? And so it's just understanding, hey, this is a big idea. And Paul would say, that it is the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that now resides in you and I who call upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The same power that raised him from the dead now lives in you. And as he's teasing out this idea, he is raising our attention to think about what it would mean to crucify our flesh and to begin living by the spirit, to crucify the flesh and to begin living by the spirit. And he's raising these two to the surface because every single one of us, if we're gonna live a life for Christ, we're gonna have to figure out how do you discern between the flesh and the spirit? And I wish it was as easy as the cartoons we watched growing up. Remember the cartoons growing up, there was like a devil on the right shoulder and an angel on the left shoulder. I, I wish it was that easy because it'd be easy to say, well, of course, that's the devil speaking. I'm not going to agree with this guy, flick him off the shoulder, go with the angel, right? Uh, but a lot of times it's, it's trickier than that. And so every single one of us leans into this tension of how do I determine what is my, my flesh and my broken nature, thinking, desiring, and trying to accomplish and what is the spirit of God at work in my life trying to accomplish? And the question will be, well, well, how can you tell the difference? And Paul's like, well, I'll clarify some things for you. Let me add some specifics to it. And so he says this in Galatians chapter five. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. They're plain as day. Like you can see this in plain sight. They are obvious. They are sexual immorality. Someone say, uh-oh, All right, we're going there. Impurity and debauchery idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, my goodness, he's just laying out the list, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, Paul's like, all right, let's talk about the flesh and the spirit. Because as you get into relationships, these two things will come to the surface over and over and over again. And you're going to be faced with the temptation to lean towards the flesh. And he's saying, but God is calling you to live according to the spirit. And he says, the flesh, well, those tendencies are obvious. And when you look at a passage like this, two things stick out. There are things that come with flair and there are things that have a glare. And a lot of text has this. You'll read through the Bible and you'll find that there are certain things that just come with more flair. They get your attention, they stand out. It's like, whoa, sexual immorality, witchcraft, orgies, idolatry. You know, it's like, man, that stuff comes with a lot of flair, it gets a lot of attention. Uh, But then there are things that come with some glare, the things that are hard to stare at because they're staring back at you. And what's interesting to me about this passage is certainly lays out some taboo and controversial things. And we don't have all the time today to unpack every single one of them. Uh, But for starters, that, that idea of sexual immorality, you should just know, and this is probably a given, Uh, our church adheres uh, to the Bible's sexual ethic. And what you will find all throughout scripture, from cover to cover, there is a very concise and consistent sexual ethic uh, being laid out all throughout scripture. Uh, There is a field of studies called hermeneutics. This is uh, the study of language and interpretation of the Holy Scripture. And and I will just tell you, you have to be really creative and do some very fine hermeneutical gymnastics in order to get the Bible to say something different. clear uh, what God's guidelines and instructions are uh, for uh, sex. And what you find is anything outside of those guidelines falls into the conversation of sexual immorality. And just so you know, there's a lot of different camps. There's sexual immorality in all of them, okay? And what you find is as this text lays out before us, there are things in the text that make us uncomfortable. Can I get an amen? Amen. Like right now, you don't think about this, but in the same way you can see my facial expressions, I can see yours. I can see how uncertain you feel in the moment. Like, my goodness, where's he gonna go? Because there's things in this text that come with some discomfort. There's some things in this text that come with some disdain. And then there are some things in this text that we just somehow overlook. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, yeah, all the stuff that comes with flair, all the stuff that comes with discomfort and disdain, I want you to look at the other things in this text and feel the same thing. See, this is what we overlook in the church. We're really good at, you know, getting excited about other people's sin. We don't look at our jealousy and our fits of rage and our discord and all the dissension and all the hatred that we spread. And Paul's saying, yeah, all of that, well, that's obvious tendencies of the flesh. And then he says this, but The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. He's saying, live every single day saying, hey, I know God's up to something and I've committed my life to following him. And so every single day I'm paying attention to God, what's the next step you have in store for me? And something I'm always putting in front of you and I think it's important for you to remember, God guides his people through three primary ways, promises, principles, and promptings. And so it's just learning, okay, what are those things that I need to discern a prompting from God, and I need to align it with God's promises and his principles Also, I can discern where God lead me so I can stay in step, because God is leading every single one of us somewhere. He's leading us into a better, more fulfilling life that is abounding in grace, love, joy, and impact in the world that we live in. Because here's the beautiful thing about following Christ. Jesus not only makes life better I mean, when you follow Christ, it comes with a grace and robs you of your shame. When you follow Christ, it comes with a peace that surpasses understanding and a joy uh, that is hard to articulate. It comes with a power and an assurance of his presence. It comes with a purpose for living and a home in heaven. Jesus makes life better. But simultaneously, Jesus makes you better at life. There's this instruction of before you realize it, like, hey, the better I get at following Christ, the better I get in my marriage, the better I get at raising these kids, the better I get at building this company, the better I get at enduring suffering and managing my finances, the better I get at serving the world around me and making a difference. Jesus makes life better, puberty, and Jesus makes (laughs) us better at life. And it's just learning to lean into and say, hey, I'm, I'm staying in step with Jesus. And it's amazing to me because in this, Paul puts before us two very contradicting views of behavior and what God's desire is for our life. Hey, there's this way, this is living according to the flesh. There's a lot of flare and glare over here. Uh, And then there's this way, and this is living according to the spirit. And what we find is, folks, character development, it requires a choice. So for those of you who are raising children, you just gotta understand, character development, it requires a choice. And sometimes we, we get the temptation conversation wrong because temptation is not only an opportunity to do bad. Temptation is an opportunity to do good. And so when you step into relational tension and conflict, there comes this opportunity. Hey, I can respond in the flesh, or I can stay in step with the spirit. This is an opportunity. And the more I choose to stay in step, the more God can shape my character and develop me as to how he sees fit. But just know that this is a lifelong journey for every single one of us. And it makes me think of sports. I grew up uh, watching ESPN every day, every morning. Anyone else wake up, the soundtrack of your life was da-da-da, da da Like, that was what I woke up to. And one thing I miss about ESPN in like the 80s and 90s is that when they would show the highlights, at the end of the highlights, they would put on the screen like the full box score. Do you guys remember this? Like the full box score, rebounds, assists, shots, all misses and makes, all these things. And now you maybe get a couple statistics of the star players and I've been talking to my kids a lot lately about box scores. A lot of times, what makes a player great and effective on the court never shows up in the highlights on ESPN. If you really wanna appreciate the game, you have to pay attention to the box score. Because if you turn on ESPN, you're gonna find out who got a technical last night and who got in a fight with one another and who got a dunk and who had a blooper. Uh, But there's a lot to the game that goes overlooked and a true person of appreciation for the sport pays attention to the box score. And I say that because uh, I think a life living according to the flesh ends up in the highlights. That's the stuff that gets attention. But a life uh, according to the spirit, well, it's kind of lived out in the box scores. Uh, A life of faithfulness is oftentimes just honoring God in the daily mundane things, and it's the things that oftentimes get overlooked, but it is the things that set us apart and make us effective in the game of life. And one way of thinking about this is the spirit is counterintuitive and the flesh is counterproductive, and the choice is yours. Wh- which would you rather have? Would you rather have God come to you and God prompt you in ways that run against the grain of your earthly wisdom, or would you rather give yourself over to the flesh in ways that run against the grain of your well being? One is counterintuitive and one is counterproductive. And scripture is inviting us to say, hey, whenever you bump into something where you and God disagree, side with him. Just receive his wisdom, even though it seems counterintuitive, even this whole conversation around our approach to conflict, though it seems unorthodox and counterintuitive to what we see in culture, uh, just continue to trust that His ways are higher, and He knows things that we don't know. He's brilliant, and His wisdom fortifies our life. And the choice is is yours. And. Recently, I was in a conversation with an individual who is a Christian, who would say they believe that Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross has redeemed their life and they will spend eternity in heaven. And this individual who believes that the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave, now living in them, will also resurrect them, uh, made this statement. He said, you know, I just don't think people really change. And I'm just not that confident God can truly change a person. Uh, To which my response was, well, if you can be resurrected by the spirit, my goodness, you can be redirected by the spirit. That's such a shallow way of thinking. Folks, if the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and resides in you and will resurrect you and I as well, then we should have great confidence in knowing by the spirit of God at work in our life, he can redirect us away from our fleshly and faulty nature and living in step with the Holy Spirit. And so it's learning to suppress our faulty impulses that lead to counterproductive living. And I don't know about you, but anyone just struggle with being impulsive? The temptation to be impulsive. Maybe you know someone who's impulsive. You're sitting next to someone who's impulsive. And what you find is Scripture is inviting us into a life of self-control. I mean, that's what one of the fruits of the Spirit is. Long-suffering, forbearance, gentleness, kindness, goodness, Self-control, right? Because the people in your life are a lot to put up with. And so you're gonna have to develop the ability to handle it. Self-control is essentially knowing you can, but choosing you won't. Knowing you can, but choosing you won't. We've said in this series, just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't make it morally right. Just because something is permissible doesn't make it beneficial. I know that I can, but I'm choosing I won't. Scripture says a lot about self-control. In fact, at one point, it gives us the image of a city with fortified walls. And it says, a man without self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. In ancient time, uh, the walls that encompassed a city were the one thing that guaranteed their security and their survival. The moment those walls were broken down, suddenly the entire community was susceptible to attacks. And scripture's saying, yeah, that's the idea. A person who lacks self-control is an individual who walks through life susceptible to attacks, susceptible to counterproductive things within their life. And so it's learning, I need to develop more self-control because what we discover in life is the most impressive people are the least impulsive people. And it's just, again, saying, God, would you help me lean in to your spirit and crucify my flesh. I I love this, and I think every single time you and I approach a relational tension, the issues of the flesh and the spirit are gonna come to the surface. Because again, these two lists, they're very different. But the one thing they have in common is everything listed are relational dynamics both on the flesh side of things and on the spirit side of things. These are relational dynamics. And what the Bible is saying is when you enter into relationship as an imperfect person relating to an imperfect person, this stuff is going to come to the surface. There's going to be points of tension. There's going to be conflict. And what do you do uh, when that rises to the surface? Do you choose the flesh or the spirit? And how do you flush this stuff out? And this is where I think most people uh, throw in the towel in the whole conflict conversation. I think this is where most of you, you've been tracking with me. Yeah, that sounds good. I see where you're coming from. But this is the part where most people would say, yeah, I'm not on board. I gotta throw in the towel here. Uh, And this is where we get exposed for our understanding of what God is after and how he would like for us to participate in conflict. Scripture gives us all these really just wonderful metaphors and imagery, and basically it's an invitation for you and I to expand our understanding of a concept. And so God will lay out an illustration or a metaphor to say, hey, think about it in this way. Maybe it'll help you understand how relationships work. And at one point, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says this, as iron sharpens iron so one person, some versions say, so one friend sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron. A few years ago, my boys got really excited about knives and swords. You when had a child just go through a weird stage? And I was, all right, let's do it. And I have a tendency to accelerate everything. I don't know how to do anything partially, go big, go home, and sometimes this is a blind spot for me, but I decide to go down this like rabbit hole. I do a deep dive into swords, and I'm reading about all the history of swords and how they're made, and as I'm doing so, I find this guy who had this like traveling tour and he would do these events where he would teach the whole history of how we discovered and started making and forging metals and then how that started lending itself towards the, the forming of weapons such as such sorts. And so he would do this traveling tour and I signed me and the boys up. And so we go out to this farm in the middle of nowhere And we sit in this guy's presentation. And it was fantastic because he taught us about all the metals and how they would mine for these things and how they discovered these things. And then he got to talking about the swords. And this is what the Greeks made for a sword. And this is how the Persians made it. And this is what the Egyptians made it. And then at the end, you could decide which sword you were going to make. And you could make the mold, and then you would melt down the metal and you'd pour it into the mold. It was fascinating. And I've got a couple pictures. Here's me and the boys. And here's them first off making their molds. And then the next picture here's us with the finished product. It was so gnarly. And what was amazing to me was how much work went into making a single blade. You know, we we live on the other side of history, post-industrial age, where when we think of tools of this nature, we're just so accustomed to them being spit out of some manufacturer. But when Solomon says, as iron sharpens iron, his understanding and appreciation for the process was so different. And while we were out there, it just amazed me how much time it took to even, you know, come to the metal, melt down the metal, make the mold, pour it into the mold, let it sit. And then the sharpening of that blade was a ton of labor and took a ton of time and effort. And it raises the question, how does iron sharpen iron? This is the invitation that God said, hey, as you come into relationships, there's gonna be tension. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be this flesh and spirit dynamic. And it's similar to iron sharpening iron for you and I to approach conflict. How does iron sharpen iron? Here's some really obvious observations, but may fly against the grain of how we view things. First, there's contact. So for those of you who are tempted to avoid issues, you can't do so. In order for iron to sharpen iron, two things have to come in contact. In addition to that, there's pressure. Hey, if you mismanage this conversation with your spouse, it's going to affect the whole family. If you mismanage this conversation with your boss, it's going to affect your career. There's a pressure on the conversation. In addition to that, there's noise. I mean, while we were out there grinding these blades, it was so noisy. And I think we have this unrealistic view of how conflict should play out and what it looks like and how it should feel and just know there is noise. Now, I I do think we need to dial it in, especially in the area of volume and tone. I think we're overdoing the yelling, and I think we are at times overly hurtful with our disgusting tones. And and I would just say maybe something to consider is uh, lower your voice and raise your words. Don't raise your voice, raise your words. I, I think a lot of times where we go wrong is, we have not taken the time to fully assess and understand why it is we think and feel the way we do and then put actual language to it so we can, and in a productive way, articulate where we're coming from to the person we're in conflict with. And so what happens is, is we get into conflict and because we haven't done the hard work of developing our language around our issues, uh, we just resort to pushing it through with emotion and gusto. And he's saying, no, don't do that. Uh, But there is going to be noise uh, because even a whisper makes noise. In addition to that, there will be friction. I mean, you have two pieces of metal running against the grain of one another. This comes with friction. In addition to that, there will be sparks. And lastly, this requires repetition. Repetition. Now, if I were to say to you, and I would have started out the series, and I said, hey, when you think of a relationship that is, it comes with pressure, it comes with friction, it comes with noise, it comes with sparks, you would think, well, that's that's a dysfunctional relationship. And scripture is saying, yeah, this is where you get it wrong. And I think a lot of times we are running. Uh, from uncomfortable situations that could be very beneficial if we would just develop the emotional and psychological fortitude to sit with attention. And here's the question Is it possible to appreciate something you don't enjoy? Absolutely. I mean, every medical exam isn't something like, man, I cannot wait for this colonoscopy. Like, (laughs) you're not thinking like that, but my goodness, we appreciate it, right? And what you find is conflict is something that you're never really going to enjoy. Uh, This isn't something that you're gonna find pleasure in, Uh, but if you stick with it long enough, you'll discover its benefits. You will develop an appreciation for it. I think you will find yourself walking away from conversations saying, hey, that was a good conversation. Not to say I liked it, not to say I enjoyed it, uh, but it was honest, it was transparent, and it's moving towards health. And because iron sharpening irons requires repetition, I'm going to stick with it. That's what God is inviting us to. And it makes me think of a book I recently read called The Coddling of the American Mind. And the subtitle is how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Now know this, I, I read a lot of unfriendly sources. I don't agree with everything this author writes, but I do agree with his overarching argument and idea. And I ask for your grace in that because I think as a church community, we have to be able to have bigger, deeper conversations, which means you have to be able to engage with unfriendly sources at times. And if you're an academic, you would understand that, that sometimes a deeper conversation uh, requires looking to other points of view and teasing out the conversation. So just know, I don't agree with everything he says in this book, but I do agree with his overarching argument. And he says this, a culture... That allows the concept of safety to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong. And healthy. Come on, you get this. If you're raising kids, so much of our strategy at times is trying to help them avoid the very things we had to go through in life. Yet in the back of our mind, we all know, yeah, as much as I don't want them to go through that pain and as much as I don't want them to experience those inconveniences, it was those very experiences that made me who I am and shaped me who I am today. And speaking extensively about the education system, he says this, teaching kids that failures, insults, and painful experiences will do lasting damage is harmful in and of itself. Human beings need physical and mental challenges and stressors, or we deteriorate. And I think what is being exposed in our culture, what is coming to the surface and being exposed in many of us is the average person walking around is radically underdeveloped and they do not have the mental and the emotional fortitude to sit within a tension. And so we avoid and we insulate and we run from every type of tension. And scripture's saying, hey, uh, as iron sharpens an iron, uh, so one friend sharpens another. And and just know this, avoiding tension is avoiding friendship. It's saying, hey, this is gonna be challenging, this is gonna come with some friction, this may even come with some sparks, Um, but we're gonna stick with it. And we are going to keep moving this towards health. And I just wonder, maybe what in your life do you find as a tension that uh, makes you uncomfortable that your instinct would be to avoid or maybe just lash out? And maybe God is placing in front of you an invitation to say, hey, lean in courageously, and compassionately, uh, because it's worth it. And you may not enjoy it, but you will appreciate it. First John chapter 1 says this. If we walk in the light, what, what happens when you flip the lights on? Everything gets exposed. And it's learning, hey, as we live in the light, we live fully exposed. That's where true freedom is. And I think the assumption is it is impossible to be fully known and fully loved. And so if I want to be fully loved, I have to disclose or I have to hide uh, parts of who I am. But the beauty of the gospel is the one who knows you the best, loves you the most, you are fully known and fully loved, and so you can step into the light courageously, authentically, genuinely, accepting, hey, this is just who I am, this is what I bring to the table, I'm not operating with secrets, and I'm not like trying to develop some artificial harmony in our relationship, and he says, as uh, we walk in the light, as he is in the light, so again, if you're gonna follow Jesus, just know he's leading you into exposure, He's bringing the facts and the truth, and he's putting it all on the table. We have fellowship with one another. He's saying, hey, the key to healthy relationships, honesty, transparency, vulnerability, genuineness. As we walk in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. From all sin. Again, this is what sets the Christian approach to conflict different than the rest because we're gospel centered people. We're grace oriented. So we recognize that every single one of us is the byproduct of radical grace and we carry into our relational tension grace within our back pocket because there's a good chance we're gonna bump into someone who needs it. And what this is saying is, you and I have to develop the courageous commitment and the ability to sit with attention and the ability to engage with people and say, hey, listen, you and I need to talk. And you and I need to address the tension in our relationship. And chances are, you have a laundry list of things you're upset with me about. Maybe some assumptions, maybe some unmet expectations. Maybe there's some grievances and some things that I've done to disrespect you or hurt your feeling. Maybe there's some things that I'm not even aware of. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm giving you permission to share those things with me. And just know, I already know what's gonna happen. It's gonna hurt my feelings a little bit. And I'm gonna have this temptation to latch out and to get defensive, but I'm giving you my word that I'm going to entrust your intentions and I'm going to fight the instinct to respond in the flesh. And I know that chances are what you're gonna share with me, maybe I need to hear. And I hope that I can earn your trust to maybe share with you some of my assumptions and some of my unmet expectations and some of my grievances. And maybe just maybe the things that I would share are also going to, disappoint you or hurt your feelings. And here's the deal. One conversation isn't gonna fix it. And maybe we're gonna walk away from the coffee still with some questions. And maybe we're gonna walk away from this conversation still annoyed with each other. But here's my promise to you. I'm gonna circle back. And we're gonna have another conversation. And we're gonna have another conversation. And we're gonna have another conversation, have another conversation because you and I, we're gonna figure this thing out. And eventually what we're gonna discover is this, it's going to make us better. That's, that's what scripture is saying. Like it's those type of people who says, I sit in the conflict. GK Chesterton, who is one of my favorite authors and just a brilliant mind, uh, once said this about the Christian faith. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Essentially, what he's saying is people don't just give their life to Christ, follow his example, follow his commands, get all the way down the road and realize, ah, nah, I'm all right. I want something else. This isn't what I thought it would be. No, he said, that's not what happens. On the contrary, he says, it has been found difficult and untried. The the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That people come to scripture and they see what God is putting in front of us and they're like, nah, that's too difficult. And here's the deal, you're right. There's no way you and I can accomplish this without the spirit of God. But the good news is we have that spirit residing in us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. And that idea, it has been found difficult and left untried. Church, this is difficult stuff, but my encouragement to everyone at all of our campuses is let's give it a try. Because the people in your life, they're worth it. Your marriage, it's worth it. The idea of having an adult friendship with your children at some point, that's worth it. Your company that you're leading and the co-workers you do work with, those are worth it. Your neighbors, your friends, it's worth it. And so as people, we courageously and compassionately lean into conflict with commitment. This is going to make us better. Because actually, that's really our only two options. Bitter. Or better. And it's just saying, all right, God, whenever tension arises, I'm not gonna bat a thousand. I'm not always gonna get it right. But help me start falling more towards the spirit, not to my flesh. And help me start understanding the difference between being emotionally driven and spiritually led. Oh, that's a weighty idea. Write it down. There's a big difference between being emotionally driven and spiritually led the acts of the flesh are obvious let me be a person of peace and joy patience gentleness goodness kindness self-control amen